This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today is a special episode. I am joined by my partner and friend, Adam Ifshin. We are actually not in the same place today. Uh, Adam is in Burlington, Vermont, and I am at my house this morning on this lovely Sunday. I'm excited for him to be here and have a great conversation. I think you will all uh, have many takeaways. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Chris. Good morning on an early Sunday morning from cold and snowy Burlington, Vermont. Good Good morning. Is it snowing there? It is not snowing now, and... Uh, Sadly, in the in the world of global warming that we live in, there hasn't been uh, there was there hasn't been much snow here recently. Cold, and uh, we did get some snow a couple of days ago, which, given why I'm here, turned out to be um, nice to have. Excellent. Most people know who you are, Adam, but for those who don't, can you give a little color about who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. Well, I'm Chris Ress's partner. Um, that's the easy way to describe what I do. No, um, I am, but so I I think most people in the industry certainly know for those who are not industry practitioners, uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, uh, except I'm a serial entrepreneur inside of one platform for 32 years. Uh, 32 years ago, I founded DLC management, uh, which started as a property manager and a leasing agent for retail real estate. And uh, we've built it over the years and built the team over the years. And today DLC encompasses a bunch of businesses under the DLC umbrella, all to about 120 people. Everything those businesses do have to do with the intersection of creating value where a retailer and their physical presence real estate, usually their store intersect. And that includes uh, everything from buying and redeveloping uh, underperforming and distressed retail open air retail to third party services for both retailers and owners who don't have their own operating platforms to institutional joint ventures with large institutions to help them deploy capital into the space. Uh, new development of single tenant net lease development in select markets for select clients programmatically. And then um, mostly it includes uh, a general contracting business that we have built up since the start of COVID to provide a reliable on-time and on-budget construction performance, uh, not only for our own business, but for our retailer clients. That is uh, quite a list. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I find it always interesting, and I'm, I'm going to I'm just going to ask you a bunch of different questions, Adam, and we're going to have a conversation. So, no, nobody, this is not planned. Uh, well, before I get there, let's let's back up to Burlington. What are you doing in Burlington, Vermont? So, um, so I'm in Burlington, Vermont, pursuing uh, a philanthropic and and, and business aligned passion, which is um, I am a sponsor. Uh, a lead judge and uh, a speaker at an event that is the largest uh, enterprise case competition at a business school anywhere in the world solely dedicated 
to family business and family business matters. Uh, it is an event that my father, uh, who I co-founded deals, was the original sponsor of 10 years ago. Uh, as many people know, we lost my dad uh, six years ago. And since then, I've become very involved here with a cadre of global academics who focus on family business, as well as a number of other people. Uh, and a case competition for both undergraduate and graduate students from the top business schools around the world. And uh, it is an extraordinary opportunity to dive deeply into the issues and challenges and opportunities, really the incredible opportunities actually, that family businesses provide to these uh, societies around the world. Um, it is an opportunity to use my brain in other ways, which you know, but having to deal with being my partner is something I'm always looking for. Uh, and it's a way to recharge my batteries uh, around thinking about not only DLC, but other businesses and how we can grow and adapt to the times uh, around the challenges that family businesses face both now and in the future. I, I honestly have no idea. And I'm someone who I consider pretty well read. What is a hot topic in family business today from an academic perspective? So this isn't what I what I've tried to do here is help draw it from the purely academic to uh, the intersection of academia and, re and and the real world. And I will say this, and perhaps this is the reason why I enjoy it so much is the academia here is rooted in the real world. This is not ivory tower stuff. So the big the big challenges in family business uh, historically are things like intergenerational succession. Sure. Uh, allocation of resources as you move from the first generation to the second generation, hopefully if that's what you want to do to the third or the fourth generation. Um, and, and these businesses are large. I mean, some of the most successful businesses in the world are family businesses. It is estimated that family businesses create and generate somewhere between 70 and 90 gross domestic product globally of the global economy. So that means that in the 10 to 30% category, you aggregate up Google, Amazon, Facebook, GE, General Motors, Tata, Alibaba, and the entire world of conventional large publicly traded, you know, non-family businesses, public and private, but they are dwarfed by the impact, the economic impact, and the societal impact that family businesses bring. That's and a wild been, stat. It's, it's a, wild, a wild stat, right? That's a wild stat. It's crazy. Well, but it's so true. Well, well how, do, how are they defining family business? What is, what is it? Because to me, that, feels, that stat feels a little bit like it's every business other than public companies. That's what it feels like. It's really, it's not at all. So if two unrelated people, I'll give you a very classic example, right? Two unrelated people start a tech company <laughs> and they grow that business and they take private equity and that business gets to be very big. And one day they take that business public, whether, whether they think it or not, they are not related. That is not considered a family business. Okay. An example of that, right, is Sergey and Pierre at Google. Right. right. 
That's right. So, you know, Elon Musk, nine children notwithstanding, Twitter and Tesla and SpaceX are not family business. Um, so what generally defines a family business is that there are one or more members of the same blood-related family who start and then ultimately run a family business. So if you think about our industry, just to tie it back to the retail real estate industry, our industry is filled with family businesses, filled with family. DLC is just one of about a billion family businesses, right? Some of the biggest owners who you and I talk about frequently are family businesses, right? Benderson, right? So Randy Benderson is the second generation. His father and mother, Nate, and I forget his mother's name, started the business. And now his son, Sean, and his other son, whose name escapes me, are in the business. That's a third generation family business. But many, many, many of the retailers are or were family businesses. Sure. Many of them, right? In fact, the business school here at the University of Vermont has two buildings, right? The first building is named after a gentleman who's alive and in his early 90s. His name is Eugene Kalkin. Gene Kalkin. I'll get to Gene in a minute. And the expansion of the business school is named after Stephen Ifshin, who you knew well, my dad. So Kalkin, Gene Kalkin, was the founder of Linens and Things. Hmm. He was also the founder of the home furnishings business in New Jersey, not far from where you live now, Chris, in Paramus and Oradell called Kalkin, which he ran with his wife after he created and sold Linens and Things. Many family businesses start as family businesses and they get sold, right? Sure. Linens and Gene sold linens and things initially to a, to a majority owned entity of Kmart and they ultimately took it public. Right. And then they spun it off, but there are many, many, I mean, the, the, re, the retail business is all about family business, right? My wife, Alicia, who you know, well, right. She and her mother had a family business and her mother and her father and another business before them in the retail pharmacy space. Most, Retail chains in America started as family businesses. Got it. Well, that is uh, super interesting. So you're at this this event in Vermont. I don't know if you can share. Are they these? Are they in this competition? Are they like theoretically starting their own business? And that's the competition no. so this is what are they this is what is case, the competition so this is a case competition and the way case competitions work and there are case competitions around a lot of different subject matters so there are just generic case competitions held globally uh, a team uh, a team from uvm is currently at a case competition at the kelly school of business at indiana university on the same weekend and that case competition is all about diversity in business so no the, here's the way a case competition works the way a case competition works is a panel usually as much as a year in advance puts together a strategy of what the competition is going to include and generally what happens is students are given a case like they would be given a case to work on in business school and they um and they have a, a limited amount of time to prepare for that case and to present in 20 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A to a panel of typically four judges, their view on the case if they were advising the business in the case. Mm. That's the way these work. This is no different than if you 
go to a business school, undergraduate or graduate, that uses the case method to teach. So this is famously places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Kellogg and North, who rely on the case study. And many, many businesses rely on the case study method. So the cases are generally timely. In the family, in a family business competition, they are focused on family businesses and usually about inflection points in those family businesses and how, and, and, and how the, the team comes about to craft a strategy using usually theories and concepts that they've been taught in class, uh, amongst other things, to come up with uh, cogent, defensible, durable, and innovative um, recommendations and solutions for challenges that a particular business in the case is facing. So I agreed after calling off the, the IPO to be the sub of a case that would be written by the, the then dean and now chaired professor of family business and entrepreneurship here at the University of Vermont wow. that ultimately led to her and I being co-authors of that case. Now, that case has never been a, a subject of the competition for obvious competitors, right? It would be unfair for me to be both the subject and a judge. Did anyone ever say, you were stupid, why didn't you go public? Uh, no, actually, for the most part, um, not to toot my own horn, most people thought I made, mo most of the most of the people who've read or used the case to teach thought that I made the right decision. Now, it does not disclose what happened, right? I see. So that's part of the challenge for the students. The other case, very there, there are a number of very famous cases in the family business world, but perhaps one of the most famous family business cases is about a company you know, which is Aldi. Um, you know, and the Aldi had some extraordinary blowups in the 2000s uh, after the patriarchs passed on and they passed on with a lot of rules that turned out to be way too restrictive and a bunch of other things. Interesting. So, um, and I mean, I'm Aldi, Lidl, Trader Joe's. I mean, move into, when you move to Europe and then to Asia, you think about the dominant really dominant players in the retail space, they are overwhelmingly family businesses. It's a really interesting perspective. I, you know, not what I work in a family business, but, you know, outside of this, of our four walls, I don't think about it as in the same way as you. So when I hear you speak about it, I'm just fascinated because I, it didn't even, I know all those companies. I know a lot of what they do well. I know they're the, how they actually generate four wall EBITDA pretty well, but to go to the next level and just think of them as family businesses is not something that I do often. So uh, it's pretty good context. So, well, and, and by the way, some family businesses, you know, become many times multi-generational. They move, they move to where family members may or may not still be involved in the management of the business. Uh, they may be involved in the ownership of the business and not the management of the business. I think certainly the example in the United States that most people relate to the most is Cargill, right? The massive conglomerate out of Minnesota that now I think has north of 150 cousins in various generations who in some way, shape or form are owners of the business. 
150? Holy cow. Uh, but Cargill, I believe, is now mostly externally managed. Sure. I mean, these companies, what about what about the Koch family and the Koch brothers, right? Yeah. Another just massive, extraordinarily huge family business uh, with obviously massive impact in many, many facets of American life, both economically and politically and otherwise. So, oh, yeah, no, I mean, and these structures and the natures of them can get incredible incredibly complex uh and they have an added dynamic right which is that you have to contend with uh generational transfer of wealth divergence perhaps of family goals values and um you also have to you know deal with it at a certain point in time is it logical for the the management and leadership of the business to be separate from the management and leadership of the family's business and wealth affairs. Right. I would say that piece, just a little inside baseball, and I honestly don't know, and I, and I think I have a lens in the room. Th those are pretty separate at DLC to an extent. So, you know, turning this to DLC and the concept of family business for, I, and I've spoken about this, you know, not really in public before, but I, it's no secret. I, and this aggravates to some extent, the, the, the family business practitioner crowd. I have always taken the view that DLC, our goal is for DLC to be best in class in what it does. If it happens to get to that place better because it's a family business, that's great. But I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, well, we're only benchmarking ourselves against other family businesses in our space. We're competing, right, for our three most important stakeholders, and they don't care if we're a fan or not, right? For the most part, team members looking for a great career in our industry with a great company, with a great culture, they're not saying, oh, I'm only going to work for a family business. Right? And we have many people who've gone from family businesses to non-family business and back again. Uh, retailers generally, and yeah, there may be some say, oh, I love doing business with long-time you know, owners, private owners, and those may be more likely to be family business. But by and large, retailers are focused on location and deal economics and the ability of the landlord to execute, not whether or not you're a family business. And institutional capital, I think we can make an argument, is probably less attracted to family businesses receive that there's a lack of alignment between family businesses and their investment, uh, their investment needs criteria, particularly around things like duration and control. Yeah. So if you think about all that, I spent 20 plus years of my career at DLC, a business that I co-founded with my father, expressly saying we were not a family business. And I did that for a number of reasons. One is because I think and you know this because you've been you've been on the brunt end of this sometimes, which is I believe that we we should grade ourselves on an absolute basis to be the absolute best we can be in our industry, irrespective of our ownership structure. Ownership structure gives us competitive advantage to get there. Fabulous. If not, it can't be an excuse. That's number one. Number two is, you know, for a very long time and you and I lived through this, the world believed that we were in a business that didn't have a great future. Right. We and I and by the way, I I, you know, I chaired the awards last night with one of the senior most executives from Amazon, who's a UVM alum. Great guy. And 
you know, the world would come to us and say, well, isn't Amazon going to put you out of business? Isn't Amazon going to make you broke? And, you know, fervently, I never believed that and fervently proven to be right. And our contrarian thesis around investing in open air retail space turned out to be the solution, not the victim of e-commerce. And you and you and I and our whole team wrote a research piece about this called the store one. So I, you know, one of the things though, is that good entrepreneurs, family or not, right. They're risk managers and they're, they're risk mitigants. So I always, I didn't want to commit that. And I didn't want to ever pressure my children, good business or not, that they should have to come into the business to keep it a family business. Uh, in part because of the landscape we were in, because the business is not easy, as you know, it's complex, it's challenging. And I wanted my children, hopefully, to be able to follow whatever passion and whatever dreams they had and make them a reality. And I told my children consistently that if you're interested, I'm interested, the business is interested. If you're not interested, my my fervent hope is that if you do have an entrepreneurial desire, and remember, my children are, are, the, are, the, are the children of two entrepreneurs. Um, if you do have an entrepreneurial desire that our family business, my goal would be that our family business be successful, that if you wanted to start a business, you could come home to the table that you grew up having dinner at, and that all of the angel and seed investors you would ever need to start a business would be in and around that table, would be your mom, your dad, your siblings, and your siblings' significant others. Pros teams have the skill and experience to ensure your properties receive the correct service on time. Not only can you rest assured your properties are being serviced, but they will also update you throughout the process, leaving nothing to wonder. Getting your employees and patrons in and out of your properties safely during winter weather can be challenging. Call U.S. Snow Pros at 609-332-3701 to see how they can help make a difference. Fascinating. Okay. We've been chatting a while about family business. I think it's really good content. I have a simple question for you on just a a leadership view and maybe just a self-identity. And you've even done it on this call. If you go, and I don't care what asset class, it could be in self-storage, office, life science, retail, industrial, most of the leaders in our space in the commercial real estate sphere, in conversation, they're probably referring to themselves in some way, shape, or form as a, a landlord or a real estate investor and i rarely rarely hear you say that when someone asks you like what do you do you immediately say and it's instinctive i think it's who you are that you're an entrepreneur which i think is super unique in the real estate space take me through how you think about that and 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 why you identify like that versus, and I, I, this is, this is no slight as just a real estate investor. Uh, right. We, we shouldn't slight that. (laughs) You and I both know a lot of billions, a lot of billionaires (laughs) refer to themselves as real estate investors. And last time I checked, neither you, 
guy or the last prior president are billionaires. Right. So um, I think we should we should give credit where credit is due. So, you know, I started a business when I was 19 years old, which was which is not DLC today. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to start my own business. I believe that. And you wanted to start do that before it was the cool thing to do, which obviously you go on TikTok or Instagram and now it's sexy. When you wanted yeah, to be, I started, it I wasn't started, sexy. I started my first business in 1985, which and it was at the time, if you think about it, the goal of the goal people I was in college with at the time, you know, they were very diverse goals, but they were things around, I want to go to graduate school. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an investment banker. I want to be a consultant. Yeah. I want to be, I want to be a professor. Uh, you know, I want to be an artist, whatever it was, but there were, there were very few people, 500 person class at college that were actively considering starting a business, you know, sometime before they were 30, if at all. Um, so I always and I looked at I looked at starting and, and building a successful business as one of you know, look, I I'm blessed. I think I'm I think I'm pretty bright. I think it's one of the ultimate challenges in America in America in capitalism to be able to build a successful business where you generate more money you need to live so that you can raise a family so that you can do good deeds so that you can become philanthropic so that you can build i enjoy right i and you know this i mean i really enjoy things that a lot of people don't around business and when i say building a business it's not about you know becoming dominant in a space it's not about building a castle to the sky it's not about being the biggest to me, it's about building a team of people to do stuff that's not easy. And to me, the motivation is when you take on a challenge as an entrepreneur, you're not only taking on the execution risk, you're taking on the financial risk. And now, now we're talking about, you know, that's, that's chess, not checkers. And to me, that is like the ultimate challenge and the ultimate, and, and I'll give you, you know, I wanted to control my own destiny. There was no, there was no doubt. I have a high degree of self-belief, self-confidence. Uh, the self-awareness came later, um, and I, and I, I've always said, look, I ended up in the real estate business because my father had been a real estate broker, and it was sort of a natural grab hole. But I could have been, I could have been an entrepreneur in any number of different businesses, and uh, you know, it, it ended up here. There's a lot of logic to that. I mean, if you look around the United States in particular, the number of, of, of people and their families who may have started with very little or nothing, who have been able to accumulate wealth in the real estate business, the real estate industry, I mean, it's far easier to, to, to make an impact and generate real success in a highly fragmented space, right? I mean, you know, if I had wanted to go start a car company from scratch, like some other entrepreneur that's in the news frequently, you know, the odds of that are really long. We know thousands, you and I know thousands of people who have, who are, they may not relate to themselves this way, who in one way or another have, you know, have met some 
reasonable, you know, bar of being successful entrepreneurs in real estate. Real estate provided an extraordinary area of opportunity. And look, you've had many of them on the podcast. I remember way back in the beginning, some of the people you've had on the podcast, when you started the podcast, you know, right before the, the pandemic and a lot of those people, a lot of those people, you know, they had a vision, they wanted to start something and, and you look at their passion. And I, I, I think that I had a lot of the same things. Yeah. <clears throat> Super helpful. You, I think you hit on a point that I, I, I want to stick to, which is you, you, one of your biggest passions and you think about being an entrepreneur, like one of the top skill sets you need is being able to build teams and everybody might have their view on building teams and what that means. What's it like building a team and, and growing a team in a post COVID world? Cause I think it's super different than a pre COVID world. So it, it's definitely different than a pre COVID world. I think there's no question about that. So I think part one of it is, I think that real, and this took me a long time. I did not get this right in the beginning. I think it's really important to recognize that entrepreneurs who successfully have a business as long as we've had DLC, they get, you, 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 you better learn how to learn from your mistakes, right? Because the world changes really fast and it only gets harder and more complex. Uh, I did not recognize this in the beginning. The backbone of any successful entrepreneurial business is not the brain of the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur cannot do it by themselves, no matter how brilliant, no matter how talented, no matter how little they sleep, not possible. The absolute key to the, develop, uh, the, the successful development of any business I have come to learn through all, all trial and error is your ability to build a team. If you can build, motivate, and, and, and create a talented team that can add value to whatever it is they do above what they ought to be compensated, then you're creating net equity. Without a team, there's a limit to how much of that you can create. If you want to create it and scale it, you successful entrepreneurs better first and foremost be team builders and incredible people people. It's an absolute requirement in my view. It is the most, the single most important skill set, I believe today, that any entrepreneur needs to have to be successful. And now turning to the second part. It's of not topic, coding? It's not coding? Oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, look, as you know, I am a frequent uh, venture capital investor across C, angel seed, series A and growth with different, you know, professionals. And independently, uh, the if you look at it, right, there are people with incredible ideas. That doesn't mean they're going to be incredible entrepreneurs. It's very, very different. Now, there are people with great ideas who said, you know, hey, building a team isn't for them or it's not their skill set. And they very often, right, the really smart ones, they, they step aside from some of that stuff. And they, 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 they go and get the best and the brightest to go do that because they, they realize that they're better off 
right? Thinking about, thinking about the next iteration of the innovation uh, as opposed to the execution. And I th that's not uncommon, and I think that's fine. It's just different, right? But turning to your point about COVID, so if, if people are willing to take the leap of faith with me instead of building a, a great team and a great culture to keep that team together is the single most valuable and important thing to both succeeding and to excelling, then you turn to COVID. And the thing about COVID is it stressed every part of your ecosystem in a business in real time, in ways that were not foreseeable. And it's taken us a long time to figure this out, but one of the things that it did was it placed after the initial phase of just adrenaline, right? Run through the wall, save the business, which you and the team did a phenomenal job of. When you get to the sort of endemic stage that you're not gonna snap your fingers and this is gonna be over and that the effects of this are gonna linger a long time, not even talking about the medical and societal effects, I'm just talking about the effects on a business for the moment. Then you get to the question of how do you keep your team together? How do you keep your team motivated? And the big challenge has been around leadership and those issues. That's where the supercharged biggest challenge, in my view, has been. I think the simple follow-up to that is, what are the challenges as you see it in leadership? And then how do you think some of the solutions will, what, what will some of the solutions turn out to be today and going forward? So, so it took me, it took us a long time to get to this place, but I think, and it's going to sound simpler than it was in the journey to figure this out. Most businesses are not enterprise. Most businesses and particularly family businesses are somewhere in the middle market. And successful middle market businesses, typically, we've been taught since the 80s in the United States, need to be flat, right? You need to, you need to focus on a handful of people who are driving revenue and leadership and a whole bunch of people who are driving execution. You need a flatter organization versus a hierarchical one so that you can generate more, you can generate better margin, lower cost, more productivity, and ultimately, right, more, more EBITDA and more equity. The challenge is, and this was a challenge pre-COVID, is as your business grows and as people move up and experientially move up, you're moving doers into managerial roles and leadership roles. So that's a challenge in and of itself. Now go do that in COVID and you are really stressing, you're really stressing that part of the ecosystem. That's what I've learned. On top of it all, COVID specifically created immense challenges. So most people who get to that point, right? You come into a middle market business, you're a doer, you're really good at it. You're a leasing agent, then you're a senior leasing agent, then you're a director, then you're a V, or same path in property management, same path in construction, same path in acquisitions. Now you're up to a point where your next move is you're gonna manage a team. You've been a great doer all this time. You've got to manage a team. Let's say you started doing that at 25. Now you're 35, right? 
as a round numbers, generalizations. You're, so let's say you're at it, whatever, five to 10 years. You're in your 30s and you're doing great. And now this is what you've always wanted. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be the vice president of leasing for a region or I'm going to be the head of leasing or I'm going to be the head of property, whatever it is. Well, guess what? So now, now you do it to being a manager. We already talked about that. Pretty big challenge, right? You got to, and people like me and you have to give people the time to mentor them and help them get the skill set they need to make that transition, which is not an easy transition. You and I've had that conversation a hundred times. Now comes COVID. Well, guess what? Most people in that age bracket are in their personal lives. Now they're caregivers too. So not only is their business life changing, but their personal life is changing. So maybe they have children. Maybe they have an elderly parent or two elderly, elderly grandparents that they need to care for, both physically and financially. Now layer all of that. Your job, we're asking you to do more. Your job's harder because of COVID in general, right? We're all scrambling for all the things we had to do, collect the rent, figure out how to lease space, deal with supply chain issues. I could go on and on and on. We'd have a separate podcast about that. But now, layer that with the fact that daycare's closed. Daycare's 40% more expensive. My mother used to two days a week, and my mother is 70 and immunocompromised. And the other three days a week, my child goes to daycare, which is a Petri dish. <laughs> and I can't have my mother watch my kid two days a week. So what am I going to do? So think about, think about what I've just described. We have, we have, COVID has taken a, a demanding career inflection point that many people couldn't figure out how to navigate, even with great help and support. Many did, some didn't, before COVID. And now we've added all these other things on top of it. It should come as no surprise to any leader of any organization, people in your organization who are probably, not necessarily, but probably, under the most stress, struggling the most, and are the most worn out from the combination of the events that I've just described, are those who are frontline and first-time managers and leaders who also happen to have people other than themselves and their significant other that they are responsible for. Yeah, I think you hit on a great point, right? And for, for those to unpack what Adam said again, you have these people who are in this major inflection point in their career, which is going from doers to management and leadership. And as that was happening, we now added all these outside complexities outside of the professional life to that, making it even more challenging than it already is because it's a really tough challenge that many do not, are not successful at. So I think the question that everyone's wondering is, okay, Adam, we buy all that. What do we do? So the, so the answer is, um, I think, you know, you have to, it's not as simple as calling up some consultant and saying, okay, give me a toolkit. There was no toolkit for this. And this is where I think the intersection of entrepreneurship and leadership is so fascinating 
and so demanding. I had never led a company through a pandemic. You had never, never led a company through a pandemic. I don't think we knew anybody who had ever led a company through a pandemic, right? So you, you're out there and it's time to go innovate and create and try a bunch of things. And, you know, you know, I always a huge believer, as you know, of Jason Jennings, uh, may he rest in pieces theory that you try a lot of small things to minimize their risk, keep the ones that work throughout quickly throughout the ones that don't. Um, and I think that that's the case. I mean, it came, it's everything from, uh, creating a super safe, you know, creating the safest possible environment you can at work so that you feel safe coming to work. We created, as you know, flex place, flex time, which is probably, you know, short of a hundred percent remote, uh, the most family friendly, flexible approach to hybrid industry. Um, we amped, uh, we, we, we effectively shut the business down for a week, a year, right? Between Christmas and New Year's, because if you think about, think of, think, just think about it, right? When do, when do people, given the circumstances I described, get the most, well, you know, holidays, right? When it's really extra demanding to be a parent and the child of an elderly person, and it's year ending your business is super demanding. So what did we do? We gave people more PTO, right? So that they could rest and recharge. And I think we saw this the last couple of weeks, right? People came out of the gate. People came storming out of the gate in a good way at DLC uh, and all of our other affiliated entities. And I think that's in part because we, we, we you know, I think the first thing, first thing that good leaders need to do is they need to be cognizant of the situation. That's the first thing. You need to have compassion, right? You need to have absolute compassion. You need to put yourself in the shoes. You need to walk a mile in, in, in that person's shoes. Then you need to help them, right? And help can be more PTO, a good hybrid work policy, all of those types of things. Those can only go so far. The real help is the mentorship. That's where the real is really helping people, going to people and saying, I see you're struggling. It's okay. What maybe I'm not saying I've been through exactly the same thing before, but tell me what's going on and maybe I can help you solve the problem faster. And you can learn, but you can also be more productive and out. As you've probably noticed, I've taken a lot of time in the last 90 to 120 days, right? To spend much more in time, more time with our people internally um, in person whenever possible, because some of these conversations I think really do benefit from being in person. Uh, but also remotely saying, okay, what can we do to help? How do we tackle this? And I think there are going to be much bigger, longer-term solutions as well. As you know, we're, we're in the process of uh, rolling out a program to revamp all of the systems, processes, and procedures that we use with towards the post-COVID world and how to make them more efficient, easier to use, how to simplify and streamline the workflows so that we take out of our workflows anything extraneous so that if people have a lot of massive time demands, they can't just be, you can't just off to somewhere else, right? You can't, because of COVID, you can't have, you, you decide living help is not working for you on the childcare side or because you can't just go hire 10 people because there aren't 10 people around to hire who would be great teammates for the roles that are open, 
We need to simplify and wipe out the non-productive extraneous workflows uh, using systems, using technology, using just being smarter and playing smarter and using what we've learned. And I think a lot of it comes down to really making a difference durably post-COVID comes down to those things. We need to rethink and rework why, and we've already started this. I mean, just look at the difference it's made when we went to a document management system at the first of the year from what we had before. I mean, it's going to save thousands, people thousands and thousands of hours across the entire organization. And that will hopefully help lower their stress, which will help make them more productive and more contributory. For sure. Have you, have you been, uh, how much have you been playing around in the new document management system? The answer is I'm the dinosaur. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. I am, I have, I have one big, I have one big like internal in my brain commitment of what I'm going to do from a technology perspective this year. And I'm, I'm trying to carve out enough space that I can be a, a good user of that product because I think it's the place where I can have the most positive impact on the organization. But, you know, I will say this, if, if, if you want to get humbled at 58 leading your company, walk into a meeting where you really, someone's asking you to make a decision about a piece of software and you realize that you really know very little about it and you have to really have to rely on the skill sets of the people that you've brought up in your organization to make a good decision. For sure. The, I think uh, those are some, one, I think you articulated some of the challenges in leadership post COVID and some of the solutions. One of the things you mentioned on, creating the team and and you mentioned about you know these doers moving to management and leadership i think one of the things maybe we can end on is from your perspective what what are some things people who are in roles where they're execution based or as you've called them doers can do to help themselves as they transition into management leadership? So I think the single biggest thing that people can do is if you believe that you're going to get that opportunity or perhaps you get to the unexpectedly in an organization, I think it's the, the first thing you can do is you need to go and you need to look in the mirror and you need to be incredibly honest with yourself. The single biggest thing that I think takes leaders down before they even get out of the starting gate is a lack of self-awareness. So the first thing I think is really important for people to recognize is, is to become more self-aware, to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are honestly and openly, and to ask other people. Uh, too often I are people who are doers who move into a managerial role typically take the position that they want people to do it exactly the way they did it because it worked for them. But guess what? The people working for you, they may be from a different generation, 
They may have a different educational background. They may, they almost certainly have a different behavioral makeup. They may be motivated, motivated by different things. I think the thing that most people fail to recognize is that that self-awareness is the beginning to becoming a really good people person as a leader. I've seen lots of people be great leaders who know very little about what the people who they're leading do. Experience can only get you so far. People skills will get you a lot further. And I think that's the single biggest thing that people miss. If you look at the people in our organization, and obviously it would not be appropriate to name names, right? But the people who have moved across that divide from being a doer to being a leader, and you'll notice I've left out words like employee and manager because those are words we don't associate with our culture at DLC. But people who have, who have moved across that divide from being a doer or a contributor or even an impact player to being a leader, they've done that because their people skills We've helped them in many instances develop their people skills and they're motivated by seeing their people do well more than they are by their own personal accolades. And I think you see that across. And by the way, if you think about it, some of the people that have become leaders at DLC, they do not have a behavioral makeup that says that they're going to be a prototypical leader. But some of our most successful leaders are just are, are not don't have that prototypical behavioral makeup, but they're successful because they have phenomenal people skills and they're really motivated. They're motivated to teach, but they're also motivated to learn. Well, that is excellent. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you have to run to the case competition in Burlington. Actually, uh, I gave the awards out last night. I'm running the plane to come home. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so, well, I'm super, I'm super excited to, I am super excited to come. I, I love being here, but it's always nice to come home. You're ready. Got it. Well, you've done this once before, but I'm going to ask again, since it's part of the show, I got three fun questions for you at the end of the show, Adam. Okay. Are you ready? I am I'm, for a question from you, Chris, whether I like it or not, I always have to be ready. All right, here we go. Question one, what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? What extinct retailer do I wish? I, I'm so bad at this question. I would love, um, I would love sort of the, not jumbo discounter to come back. I would love, I think that there's a role still for, um, you know, I, I changed my mind. You know what I would like, you know what I would like to come back? I, I would like to see, I wish, and it's not going to happen, I don't think, and they're not extinct yet, but I would like the old Bed Bath & Beyond to come back. It's a great answer. The I old Bed Bath & Beyond on me, more than Toys R Us, more than defined the category killer. Bed Bath & Beyond had 50,000 foot stores doing $300 a foot 15 years ago. Think about it. 
selling sheets and towels. It would be good for America. Love it. Question two. What is the last item over $20 you bought in a store? The last item, this is gonna this is gonna be wild, especially since they gave out awards with Amazon last night. The last item that cost over $20 in this uh, in a store that I bought in a store and carried out of the store was a book. A printed book. What book? Uh, well, I bought a whole pile of them. Um, but um, the book that I the book that I bought for myself to read was called And Then There Was Light. This is the historian at Vanderbilt, John Meacham's latest book. Um, it is about uh, President Lincoln. Uh, as you know, I, I, I was a historian and now I'm an amateur historian. Um, and I find Meacham's ability to pull leadership lessons from historical people to be um, to be extraordinarily valuable. And I will tell you, the entire pile of books really revolved around uh, the latest biography about Churchill, Meacham's book about Lincoln, uh, John Mack's memoir about saving Morgan Stanley, and the book I'm reading right now, which is a book called Hearts Touched by Fire, which is a book about leadership by a gentleman by the name of David who served in four White Houses, uh, three Republican, one Democratic. He's the last person to have a senior role in both a Democratic and a Republican White House. And after that, he spent 20 years um, running a leadership institute at Harvard. Uh, Excellent. Last question. Adam, if you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle could I find you in? So the answer is you would probably find health and beauty aid section because huh. I'm currently in the market to find, as you know, I am a shaved head bald man. I'm currently in the market to find a shaving cream that is less hard on my head. So that's where you would probably find it. Amazing. Really appreciate uh, you doing this on a Sunday morning, Adam. Uh, safe travels back and I will uh, see you soon I will talk to you tomorrow Chris thank you for listening to Retail Retold if you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com this show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.